Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. In our second episode from the 2022 conference, After Virtual, we go back to school. Longtime porcher and former college professor Jeff Paulette shares on why he left the academy and his love of Gerald Ford. Angel Adams Parham, a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, shares on her efforts to bring the works of classical literature to young children from diverse backgrounds. And the one and only Jason Peters closes the session as only he can with reflection on teaching in the time of COVID. Spoiler alert, Jason was not a fan of Zoom. Here's Jeff Paulette. Academy, although I know that there are people who did applaud it. Um, uh, I'm really happy to be here at Grove City. It's my first time uh, visiting this campus, a lovely campus, uh, although I haven't had much of a chance to check it out yet. Um, and uh, I can't help but wonder if uh, the uh, if I had been a faculty member at Grove City, how different this, talk, this uh, talk would be from the one I'm about to give you. Uh, I feel like I've uh, come to Jerusalem to bring you news from Nineveh. And, uh, so I don't want this to be um, a simple Jeremiad about the state of the academy. I want it to be a complex Jeremiad uh, about the state of the academy. Um, I had been a college professor for 30 years and uh, thought I would never leave the academy, my uh, kind of rule of thumb was always feet first is how I was going to leave uh, the academy. People would say, when are you going to retire? By the way, a turning point in your life is when people start asking you, so when are you going to retire? Uh, <laughs> they're like, okay, A, I'm old, and B, what are you implying? Uh, and, but I used to say, why would I retire? I, I, I really love what I do. I get to read books, and I get to write, and I get to talk to a captive audience. I mean, what's not to like? I get paid for it. Uh, why would I leave? And then, you know, the 2010s hit, and I was like, eh, 70. You know, and then 2015 hit, and I was like, 67. And then you know, by 2020, I was down to 65, you know, and I was carefully calculating my retirement accounts to see if that was going to be possible. And then COVID hit. And uh, COVID, in my judgment, uh, did not change the state of the modern academy. It simply accelerated and intensified trends that were already in place, that were already happening. And, uh, uh, you know, we talked about uh, churches in the first session. I can tell you that there was nothing more unpleasant for me than teaching on Zoom. Uh, I absolutely hated it. Um, and I need not to go into all the reasons why. Uh, but it took the joy out of something I always loved doing, uh, and that is being in the presence of students, uh, talking uh, about ideas, right? seeing the lights go off in their eyes um, instead of seeing the lights go off in their rooms. <laughs> um, so it, it, uh, I, I 
still uh, would have probably uh, rode things out for a while uh, after COVID. Uh, except I was approached by the Gerald R. Ford Presidential Foundation. Now, for those of you who are young students, Gerald R. Ford was the 38th president of the United States. Um, and the only president we've had who was never elected to either the presidency or the vice presidency. Thursday, by the way, was the 47th anniversary of Sarah Jane Moore's ill-fated attempt to assassinate President Ford. Uh, she fired at him twice from point-blank range and missed both times. <laughs> and um, I can't help but wonder how history would have been different uh, <laughs> had she hit her target. Some people might speculate that it wouldn't have been different at all, but... Uh... <laughs> and I'm just up here stealing jokes from someone else. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, I always said uh, teaching, uh, to, be, to be an effective teacher, you have to love who you love, uh, I'm sorry, who you teach, what you teach, and you have to have a sense of professional responsibility. Um, and I saw all three of those things declining among my colleagues. Uh, and, and so I became cautious about if there were any signs of decline in myself. Right? What was I not loving who I teach quite as much? Was I loving not what I teach quite as much? Uh, was I losing my sense of professional responsibility? And, um, you know, it, it's, it's tough to be self-reflective in those things. You know, it's like, you know, when, when Willie Mays was stumbling around the outfield for the New York Mets, he probably still thought that he could play ball. Uh, and this is the problem that we run into. We still think that we're at the top of our game when in fact uh, we're in some sort of sense of decline. Um, and uh, this idea of loving what you teach, loving who you teach, and having a sense of pro uh, professional responsibility in part relates to the context within which you're operating. Uh, and that's why I say if I was at Grove City, probably this would be a very different talk. Um, I was at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. I grew up in Holland, Michigan, so I was you know, teaching uh, a few blocks from, from where I grew up. Um, I love the city. I love the school. Um, and then I saw in the last 10 years... Um, the changes that have been taking place in the academy writ large taking place rather rapidly uh, at the college that I loved. And uh, to the point where uh, one of my tasks uh, often was to talk to prospective high school students and their parents, uh, you know, who would come to Hope and, you know, see if they wanted to spend the next four years of their life at Hope. And it became more and more difficult for me to look them in the eye and tell them that they should spend $50,000 a year to send their children uh, to that school. Uh, and that was a moment, uh, a kind of crisis. Like when I realized that about myself, I'm having a hard time looking these people in the eye, uh, telling them they should spend money to send their kid here. Um, then I realized I was gonna have a hard time looking at myself in the mirror and taking a paycheck uh, from the place. Uh, the one thing I never wanted to be was a paycheck professor. And I feared that giving the changing context, I was in danger of becoming exactly that. So what happened in these five years? So if you talk to some of my colleagues uh, at Hope, especially those of us of a more conservative bent, uh, one of the things they'll all say is, we can't believe how quickly things have changed. Like in the last five, six years, we just can't believe how quickly things changed. 
And that's why I say, and COVID kind of accelerated and intensified some of this change. Well, uh, uh, Gerald Ford's Republican opponent, this is two Gerald Ford, by the way, uh, references, I bet you didn't think that was gonna happen. Uh, opponent in the 1976 primaries was Ronald Reagan. And Reagan used to love to tell the story uh, about this giant pile of horse manure and uh, a young boy eagerly dove into the pile, exclaiming, I know there's a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> well, the academy was becoming more dung and fewer ponies. And uh, it was getting harder and harder to dig through the pile and, uh, with the hope that there was a pony in there somewhere. So what is the manure that was piling up? And, and uh, I, because there are children in the room, I'll stick with the word manure. But you know what uh, piece of cow excrement I'm actually referring to. Um, the first were the curricular battles that were taking place on campus. And um, you know, part of loving what you teach is teaching an academic discipline and then teaching the subject matter and material of that academic discipline. Um, increasingly, the curriculum was becoming ideological. Uh, people weren't teaching their disciplines. They were teaching um, what they thought was important. Uh, they, they were, they were uh, trying to save the world, and they were using the classroom as a platform. So I, there's a previous issue of Local Culture where I uh, explain um, some of the stuff that was going on in classrooms at Hope College. Um, it was dispiriting. Um, and then in uh, the last couple of years, uh, we decided in our infinite foolishness to do a curriculum revision, a general education revision. And um, on the one hand, that was good because our gen ed curriculum was a total mess. Um, on the other hand, I went into it with great trepidation because I was confident that my colleagues would take an already bad general ed curriculum and make it worse. And I'm happy to report that I was not disappointed in my fear. Uh, they did, in fact, do exactly that. And one of the ways they did that is they attached in the curriculum these learning flags. And the learning flags would be uh, students would have to collect a certain number of flags uh, over the course of their college career in order to graduate. And these are not learning flags such as, have you read Shakespeare, or you know, have you read Plato, or something like that. It was um, glo a global learning flag was one of them. I, and I, I have absolutely no idea how the word global modifies the word learning, but apparently other people have figured that out. More, more uh, interesting still, we had a global learning domestic flag um, that students had to collect, <laughs> which, which I thought was a little like, you know, Christian learning atheist, uh, <laughs> global learning domestic. Um, and what had happened was, uh, I, I didn't realize this, but my American government class uh, had received a global, global learning domestic learning flag, um, not to my knowledge, but this had happened. And so I got uh, an email from the global learning director uh, which, yes, there is a global learning director. And uh, she said, um, I'm going to need your syllabus. I'm going to need a list of all your outcomes. And uh, I need to review your readings to make sure that they match the criteria we have for global learning. Uh, and uh, the, the, the main criteria 
criterion was that greater than 50% of your reading had to be from um, historically marginalized groups, authors who came from historically marginalized groups. And I said, well, my senior seminar, I have um, three books, uh, Rousseau's Confessions, Augustine's Confessions, and Camus' The Fall. Camus and St. Augustine are both from Africa. Uh, so that's two thirds uh, of my reading. And I was quickly informed that they were the wrong kind of Africans and uh, that they would not count uh, for global learning. Uh, so these learning flags uh, uh, became this big thing. And I, I said to the global learning director, I said, yeah, well, I, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, I'm not going to let you tell me what books I can and cannot assign in my classes. And uh, I said, well, you have to. I said, no, I don't. So it became that, right? Well, you have to. Well, I'm not going to. <laughs> well, you have to. Ain't going to happen. Uh, I said, remove the flag. Well, we can't remove the flag. I was like, well. We're at a stalemate because this ain't going to happen. Just remove the flag. I don't care. Um, they did finally remove the flag from my course. But as I pointed out, what you've done is in the curriculum of the college, you've incentivized students to take classes from a group of faculty who are ideologically aligned with the curricular changes. And you're disincentivizing students from taking classes with faculty who are not ideologically aligned uh, with the uh, learning standards. Um, and, and it became uh, even more intense than that. Um, as this is all going on, uh, we're uh, Hope's uh, mission statement. You'll be happy to know, by the way, that Hope College is um, um, growing global leaders. Um, and um, uh, and uh, in the liberal arts and in the context of the historic Christian faith, um, and uh, so during the uh, curriculum debates, this question about the liberal arts came up quite a bit. And uh, I suggested at one point that I would give $50 to any faculty member in the room who could tell me what the seven traditional liberal arts were. Uh, and another 50 if they could tell me the difference between the quadrivium and the trivium. Um, I got no takers uh, on that wager. So uh, this is one of those moments where you realize there's kind of a mass hypocrisy in place, right? We use the language of the liberal arts, but we don't actually know what we're talking about. Um, another um, addition to the pile of dung uh, was my dealing with administrators. Now, a good administrator, is the president still here? Okay, okay, good. No, no, I, I don't know. Now, a good administrator is worth his or her weight in gold. I absolutely believe that. If you've got good leadership, uh, you can make a lot of good things happen. If you've got bad leadership, you've got an enormous problem on your hands. If you've got weak leadership, you've got an enormous problem on your hands. Um, we had weak leadership. And uh, so I was getting called in uh, regularly uh, to the dean's office for all kinds of misdemeanors while felonies were going un unpunished. Um, one of them was in class one day, I made a joke about mask wearing. And uh, uh, this immediately got me hauled into the dean's office, uh, who said to me, 
Uh, it has been reported to me that you made a joke about mask wearing. And I said, well, sounds like me. And he, he said, did you say this? And he repeated the line in class. I said, well, I don't remember saying that. But again, it sounds like me. I very well could have said it. And he said, well, you're not allowed to make jokes about masks in class. Like, okay. <laughs> it became kind of my standard. Okay. Uh, so dealing with weak administrators uh, became a source of additional frustration. Maybe the biggest problem uh, was the proliferation of jargon. And uh, the jargon is usually used to cover ideological machinations on somebody's uh, part. Uh, but it's, it's uh, utterly, utterly ascendant on campuses such as Hope's. Uh, I was complaining to a businessman once about jargon on, on Hope's campus. This is maybe four or five years ago. And I was saying, I can't, uh, giving him examples of campus jargon. And he looked at me and he said, so he's in these corporate boardrooms. He looks at me and he says, uh, have you guys become agile yet? <laughs> agile? Like, like a gymnast? <laughs> he goes, no, are, are you agile? I said, I don't even know what you're talking about, but uh, I, not that I know of. <laughs> How about nimble? Are you nimble? Uh, I said, oh, no, we're not particularly nimble. We're stodgy. <laughs> and he said, don't worry. It's coming your way. And sure enough, about five, six months later, uh, I'm in a meeting, and the dean says, you know, we need to become more agile. And I kind of went, oh. All right, there it is, right? The corporatization of the academy, right, including the uncritical adoption. Uh, speaking of jargon, critical thinking, uh, which would be more acceptable if they actually exercised some of it. Um, um, our administrators, in all their wisdom, um, created a student thinking portal. And this allowed students to anonymously report faculty who were expressing heterodox views or so forth in their classes. Um, I found out last fall, I got an email from the Title IX office on campus um, that uh, it simply reported to me, we have concluded there is not sufficient evidence to continue with the investigation. And I, there's an investigation? Uh, so here's what had happened. A student had reported me uh, for having said something heterodox in class. It got kicked to the Title IX office. Um, the Title IX office uh, registered the complaint, apparently investigated the complaint, adjudicated the complaint, and uh, reported the complaint to me, all without me knowing any of this was going on. Um, I suggested uh, to the leadership of the college uh, that this was bad for any number of reasons, a violation of due process being one of them. Um, like, how could they even adjudicate this without hearing my side of the story? Uh, but one thing it was doing was, was creating an adversarial relationship between faculty and students. How can you teach class properly if you're sitting there self-censoring because you're afraid that some student is going to report you for some violation? It turned out that I, I had received multiple um, complaints. Um, one of them, uh, because in my American government class, I had uh, said, 
you need to balance out uh, uh, anti-discrimination claims with religious liberty claims. And um, a student complained about this because I was treating them as if they were morally equal claims. And obviously, religious liberty claims were simply excuses for hateful biases um, and, and shouldn't be supported at all. Um, distance learning. Uh, colleges going, uh, treating it as if it's actual learning. And uh, during the two years of COVID, treating um, the classes on, uh, that were taking place on Zoom as if this was actual learning that was taking place. And you sit there in these meetings and they talk about how great we're doing and, you know, you know, you got, you know the faculty here are amazing and you know in your heart that absolutely no learning is taking place whatsoever. Um, the tyranny of feeling on campuses. Uh, William James once said that, uh, you know, there, there's a difference between what he called uh, tough-minded uh, thinkers and tender-hearted thinkers. And uh, we've become all tenderness and no toughness whatsoever. Uh, if, if you suggest that uh, there is this thing called the life of the mind and reason that's uh, yielding before feeling, which usually, by the way, dresses itself up as another piece of jargon, namely lived experience, uh, which is way different than normal experience, by the way, uh, which is unlived experience, uh, apparently. So more manure, fewer ponies. It got to the point where I was feeling uh, as a, a campus conservative that I was basically the Washington generals. And, uh, and a new Bill Kaufman would like that one. Uh, uh, if you don't know who the Washington Generals are, they are the hapless team that was the sacrificial lamb for generations for the Harlem Globetrotters, whose job it was uh, to show up on the basketball court and lose to the Harlem Globetrotters. I believe they won once or twice um, in their history against the Globetrotters. And uh, um, the, the report of, of the event is really quite funny. Uh, children are crying and everybody's upset, you know, because the Globetrotters lost. They're screwing around. Um, so what did not change, um, I did not stop loving who I taught or what I taught, but the context within which the te teaching took place made it more and more difficult for me to do that. And it was producing bad effects, uh, the most significant of which was I found myself irritable, complaining, uh, combative, frustrated. And at a certain point, uh, I said, this just ain't good for me. Right? This is not good for my soul to be constantly irritated. Plus, there's the kind of crisis of conscience, right? I'm taking a paycheck from a place I really no longer believe in. I still believe what's going on in my classroom. And as long as I could protect my classroom, from these kinds of intrusions, I, I could embrace the whole thing, but it was getting harder and harder to preserve the integrity of the classroom. So uh, why the Gerald R. Ford Presidential Foundation? And uh, then I'll yield the floor. Um, obviously, he's one of America's finest presidents, and uh, you know who would not want to be associated <laughs> with? I, you know, I, he's actually uh, uh, was, was a fine human being. Um, uh, Yuval Levin uh, wrote a book a couple years ago called A Time to Build, and the main argument of the book is the deinstitutionalization of, of America. And our institutional, institutions are failing in two senses. 
One, they are no longer articulating and defending the norms by which those institutions are supposed to operate. And two, they are no longer effectively forming the people who are to inhabit roles within those institutions. And I think that's very true of uh, the academy, other than places such as Grove City or Patrick Henry or Hillsdale, who I think are still doing the job pretty well. Um, right? We're not forming the kind of people who are operating by traditional academic norms. They're operating by a whole new set of rules. Um, and uh, in this new role that I have, uh, I was given tremendous freedom to engage in institution building. Right? And that is a kind of rearticulation and defense of sets of norms. Um, and then to put together programs dedicated to forming the kind of character and the kind of conduct that people need uh, to inhabit our institutions properly. And I'm speaking here of our economic institutions, our academic institutions, and perhaps above all, our political institutions, which are suffering from a serious character deficit. So, thank you. Thanks, Jeff. That's Dr. Paulette. He's our political scientist. And we also have an English professor and a sociologist. And since the English professor is still writing his talk, we're going to go with the sociologist, <laughs> Dr. Angel Adams Parham, who comes to us from UVA. Thanks. Good morning to everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you so much for the invitation. All right, so I'm going to be talking with you about education for human flourishing, K-16 and beyond. Um, so I did not anticipate I would not have my computer in front of me, so I'm going to have to kind of <laughs> look here. Um, so I wanted to start out with our current challenges, some of the current challenges that we are dealing with in our political discourse and our sense of um, the common good. And so questions about what value is there in studying classic texts? Um, what should our posture be toward very complicated and difficult aspects of our past? And then in terms of the American project, um, who are we as Americans? Um, and fundamentally, what is the American project? Is it something that is fundamentally good or something that is fundamentally flawed? As you know, we have a cultural tug of war going on. And I think the 1619 project and then the response in the 1776 um, commission report really encapsulate what this kind of cultural tug of war is. And it seems that um, we are kind of at this place where we're just at these loggerheads. And I do think, um, in terms of the virtual theme that we have here, that social media is not making it any better. Um, people tend to kind of be in their electronic silos, and um, you tend to get the most extreme voices coming out at the top. At the top, and there's not a lot of kind of cross-fertilization or people um, who are coming from different perspectives who are able to actually speak to each other on these things. So in light of this, what I want to do is to think about um, the promise of the canon, the promise of having a canon, and what a canon can do for us. Uh, and I want particularly to think in terms of um, 
working across traditions. So what is it that we gain by being very steeped in the Western canon and by also um, learning about the black intellectual tradition and putting those two in dialogue. Now, they're not completely separate. That is, <laughs> that there are canonical works that are part of the black intellectual tradition, um, but they're, they're not completely overlapping either. And so in that sense, I do see them as two distinct, if related, traditions. Um, I also want to talk with you about the idea of cultivating community um, in a way that could potentially help us to come across um, some of these divides that we've been having. And I'm gonna do that by talking about um, an educational organization I founded about eight years ago called Nyansa Classical Community. And so what Nyansa does is it brings the classics to historically marginalized populations. So the work that we do isn't necessarily only for those populations, it could be for anyone, but there's a special concern of bringing these classic texts and this tradition, you know, kind of talking about some of what we have lost and trying to bring that back um, to many places, and that there's a, a sense of community building that happens there. And you'll see that, for instance, in the way that I worked with my college students, um, in the community with younger learners. Um, and then also, uh, at the time when I started this, I was still homeschooling my daughters. So I homeschooled them from the beginning, um, right up until last year when we moved to Charlottesville. They're now at a, a classical Christian school. Uh, but I had a number of homeschool families who also came into the community to help. And I think that there is some real um, significance and good that happens there in terms of creating Christian community and really living out the promises of having this kind of canon when that happens. <coughs> so here you have the mission of Nyansa Classical Community. I won't go through every single point, um, but central to it is you know, kind of cultivating the moral imagination. And the, the belief that introducing students to these texts and to the great conversation is a positive good in and of itself and also helps to build, you know, we come back to that question of, um, particularly in the, the context of the United States, what it means to be American, that it's helpful to have this kind of common tradition that we're able to all benefit from. But as I'm sure you know, so many of our young people, whatever their background, are not getting that anymore. Um, and so we have a particular mission to really make that tradition come alive for everyone um, but with a particular burden for students who have not gotten this and who have historically been marginalized. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the lower school. We started out with elementary school, and then we now have an upper school program, which I'll get to. But I'll spend more of my time talking about the lower school because um, the first six years were focused on the lower school. So what we have done is this continual kind of threading together. So for instance, when we read the Odyssey, so I was working with children ages four to about 11. When we read the Odyssey, we read a beautiful um, children's version of the Odyssey, Gillian Cross's version. And then at the same time, um, learned about the art of Romare Bearden, um, who was a very gifted African-American artist who has a, a series called The Black Odyssey, 
where what he does is he kind of explores the, the themes of Homer's Odyssey through the African um, and African diaspora communities. And it's just beautiful, beautiful artwork um, that explores these themes. So that's an example of what we did. And the children made some collage art in the style of Romare Bearden as they were also reading and discussing Homer's Odyssey. We did. Um, what I think of as creative interpretations of the Greek gods and goddesses when we were doing Greek mythology. So the college students who were working with me, um, they were taking service learning classes in sociology. So they were taking courses like social problems, social and political inequality, and then they would have a choice about where in the community they would work, and several of them would decide to work with me at Nyansa Classical Community. And so they would keep kind of journals about their experience there and you know what this was teaching them, how this was reinforcing what we were learning in the classroom. And there were a number of them who noted um, how some of these students, so the students that we were teaching were all African American, how they were relating to the stories that we were reading. And there were a number of comments um, wondering from the young students, wondering why we were only reading about white people. And I said, OK, that's interesting. Um, so I see something like Greek mythology as having this kind of universal appeal, just because it's so embedded in um, Western literature. And it's very hard to really read competently or understand the culture if you don't have, say, you know, a biblical foundation, know something about Greek mythology, and so on. And so um, since we were talking about um, you know, beings that are not actually real, I thought, well, we can use a little bit of creative license. You know, let's um, have an artist, and we had an African-American artist, create these different versions of the Greek gods and goddesses um, that were now, they are, some are black, brown, Asian, white. And I put that in the category of creative license. Now, for our Bible stories, um, we have tried to find figures that look somewhat Middle Eastern, because there's a historical reason, there's a historical place, they're real people. But for the Greek gods and goddesses, we used our imagination. So similar to kind of what Hamilton has done for the founding, um, is it just, it draws people in, and they see themselves in the story. And at a certain point, I do think um, this aspect of Western literature with the Greek gods and goddesses has gotten this kind of universal appeal, and I wanted my students to be able to enter into it. Another aspect of this, when I think about some of those reflections that my undergraduates wrote, um, most of them are white, um, relatively privileged. And there was one that stands out to me where she said, I am just astonished at how many of the young black girls do not like themselves and do not think that they are pretty. Um, because for them, they think, I am pretty because I have light skin and I have straight hair. And they were just stunned that this was the case. Um, and that is a, that's a pretty common situation. Um, even my own daughters went through a phase of that, of saying, you know, I, I just, I wish I had hair like the white girls, you know, I wish I had lighter skin. Um, so I think that's something that when people are thinking about this, it's hard to appreciate if you haven't been part of that kind of community, the extent to which it actually does really matter what you are seeing on a regular basis. And so that's the reason that we went through the trouble to commission these very diverse um, images, and you'll see some of those in the presentation. 
So this is from our program. We met on Wednesdays and Saturdays. We would give them lunch. We would pray together, sing together, eat together before we went into the different um, sections of what we did. And so you are seeing um, my college students here who are working. And several of them volunteered with us for several years at a time, which was very good for building our community. This is learning, um, reinforcing math and language arts skills um, because many of the students were behind where they should have been in terms of math and language arts. And so we did a lot of reinforcement through games and songs and that kind of thing to really help them. More of the same thing. Um, the gentleman on the left is actually on my board, um, a PhD in classics from UVA, just really wonderful. And so this is also a way, when I think in terms of cultivating Christian community, um, K-16 and beyond, I think about people like Chris, people like some of the homeschool uh, moms that you will see in some of these slides, it is a way of getting into um, communities that often there are not ways to ha develop that kind of relationship. And so it had been um, a really very beneficial thing for everyone. This is a panel from Romare Bearden's Black Odyssey. Um, and so this is Odysseus going home. And so you get a little bit of a flavor of his Black Odyssey series, which is quite nice. And this is the Latin group. So what would happen is the children would come in, they would play, we would eat, sing, and pray together, and then they would divide up into different groups. So there was um, literature where we would read being, you know, Homer, we would read Greek mythology and so on. There was the Bible group, and then there was the Latin group. And we focused on learning um, the Latin roots of English language and playing different games and that kind of thing that was to help with literacy as well. So this is um, Bible Jeopardy. And the woman who is leading this, her name is Wendy. She's a homeschool mom. And our kids um, were both active in classical conversations. So we did classical conversations for a number of years. And you'll see off to the right her son. Um, so she brought her children with her to do this. And again, this is another aspect of really kind of creating some Christian community in ways and between people that wouldn't always happen otherwise. And I had other other homeschooling families who also came out, and it was a very, very positive thing for them to be able to do. Um, all, were act, all were doing classical Christian education at home and then doing that in the community with us. Here are some of those images that I told you about. On the left, you have Athena, and on the right, you have Zeus. And then these are the Odyssey collages of the children. So my um, college students worked with the kids to put together these collages based on the Odyssey and based on Romare Bearden's work. Um, and it, it was just really, really quite beautiful. The other thing that we did that was very well received is that we had the children write haiku poetry based on the different Greek gods and goddesses. And the artist who put together the images was also a graphic designer. She created a poetry book of the children's poems with this beautiful artwork. And we gave it away in the community. And there was a local diner owner who bought 100 copies of this poetry book and invited my students to the restaurant to sign them and gave them lunch. 
And it was as if my students were celebrities. So you had these adults lining up to get their poetry books signed by seven-year-olds. Um, and the children were just so proud of themselves. Um, but you know, this is a long process. They had really been immersed in this world of Greek literature. They had really gotten immersed in these stories. Um, so they're entering into this kind of you know larger cultural mainstream that is going to stay with them for always. They were getting the satisfaction of having done this work and seen their work you know, tangibly um, in their hands and then appreciated in the community. And that's the kind of thing that we're hoping we can do more of as well. So here is one of my college students working with the kids. And what you see on the right um, is Ania. And her, um, she translated, this is when we had just started reading the Iliad, right before the COVID pandemic. So what she did after we would read the story and talk with the kids about it, she put the story into poetry and rhymed couplets, and then put them over um, beats and wrapped them with the kids. And when I tell you the kids kids ate it up. Um, and as far as I, the way that I think about this is that the original Homer is poetry, right? You know, it was recited before it was written down. And so I think we are very much in the tradition um, in terms of kind of living out that poetry, embodying that poetry. And it was just a lot of fun. Um, I don't think I have the setup where you can actually hear it. There, there is a um, a video link here, but I, I wasn't clever enough and fast enough to get it hooked up so that you could actually hear it. Um, but that's another way that we kind of bring the traditions into conversation with each other um, is putting Homer, you know, so they're learning the Iliad, they've learned the Odyssey, and then they're kind of putting that into their vernacular experience so they're getting the best of both worlds. So we just started um, creating an upper school program. All of what you saw is the lower school program. And the upper school program also puts great text into dialogue with each other. And so you can see an example here of some of the kinds of texts that we read together that go together very, very nicely. So for instance, when um, they read the allegory of, the, play, of the, the cave, then they're reading that at the same time as they're reading the part of Douglas's narrative where he's learning how to read. And he is literally learning that liberation is in education. Right. Um, so anyone who is familiar with the very stunning um, text of that story where his um, master's wife starts to teach him how to read and the husband says, you absolutely cannot do this. He will be entirely unfit to be a slave if you teach him how to read. And from that moment on, he's absolutely determined to learn how to read. So he says, I now know the route to freedom. So we read that together with the allegory of the cave. I think they're very nicely matched. Um, let's see, I'll go to the last one. So Homer's Iliad and the Legend of Sundiata is the basis for our second upper school program, which we're developing this year. So I have a, a team of, of writers and artists and poets who are working on this second curriculum. Um, so I'm sure you all know the Iliad. You probably don't know the Legend of Sundiata. The Legend of Sundiata um, is from medieval Mali. And it is um, a wonderful epic of war and glory, which it has a lot of kind of thematic overlap with the Iliad. 
And so I'm very excited to see how that comes together because part of what we're trying to do is to show that these themes have been part of a larger conversation for a long time. And so we want them to be steeped in the Western canon and we want them to also understand how the themes of that canon, kind of Mortimer Adler's idea of the great conversation, those themes you will also find in other cultures um, and other traditions and you can bring them into conversation with each other. We also do art, um, so putting um, different kinds of artworks into conversation, um, into conversation with each other. I'm sure you'll recognize the Pieta. On the left, you have a work by an African-American artist named Kahinda Wiley, um, who is very well known for kind of working in dialogue with great European artworks and kind of reimagining them within his own vernacular context. Again similar kinds of themes, similar kinds of working out, but looking across traditions to have these conversations. So I'm going to leave you um, with some kinds of source text. So if you are interested in doing this kind of thing of putting these different kinds of texts and traditions into dialogue, where would you go for the source text? And so the first one here that I'm giving you is um, the Great Ideas on the Centopicon of Mortimer Adler, um, which is an absolute beast of a work. Um, it, it is available, I know it's available um, online, I have a, an online version of it, and it is an absolutely thorough mapping of the themes of the Western canon. And you can, he gives you, you know, down to um, specific parts and page numbers of different great works and the themes that they are dealing with. So here I've highlighted some on freedom, some of the different aspects before. He has an essay that goes first with every theme. It's 101 or 102 themes. And so on liberty, these are the different dimensions of liberty that he talks about. And then he will give you an example of where you can find that discussion of liberty in different kinds of major works. Then if you're interested in that theme of literature in the black intellectual tradition, um, these are examples of some of the works that you could find. I don't have it up on the screen. Um, there are various resources you could look at. There is one called Call and Response, which is an anthology of the black intellectual tradition um, that Henry Louis Gates at Harvard has put together where you could also kind of thematically find similar things. And then I'll end here um, with some resources. So the upper school and the lower school curricula that we have um, are resources for those who are interested in working at a K-12 level. And then um, the last thing is I've put together resources on the black intellectual tradition that again put text in dialogue, so text from the core of the Western canon into dialogue with the black intellectual tradition. Um, and it has pre-recorded lectures and the readings are all organized and in-depth discussion questions. And I've had, I make that freely available to people and I've had um, several people set up reading groups. One of my favorite, and I'll close with this one, is um, a group of homeschool moms in Louisiana. And so it's actually the group that my oldest daughter was part of before we moved to Charlottesville. And so that group of moms, um, all white Louisiana homeschool moms who are very interested in learning about this tradition this summer um, went through this material, the lectures, the readings, the discussion questions, um, and it, they have had a really wonderful time learning about it and kind of reading, you know, 
um, Plato and Douglas and Phyllis Wheatley and her exchange with George Washington and so on and so forth. And so that is also available for anyone who's interested. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Parham. Now, I think Jason has finished his paper now. So we'll have Dr. Jason Peters from Hillsdale College. Thanks. I even typed it and printed it off while I was sitting over there. Uh, thanks to Jeff Bilbro for all the work putting this together, and thanks to the folks here at Rose City for hosting us. Uh, I say that because if anybody ever asked me to host one of these, it would be the last FPR conference that we ever had. <laughs> for some reason, I called this the sin against the body. For this they wept not. And then I had to write the paper to go along with the title, which was not difficult. Since about late February of 2020, the arrogance, stupidity, and incompetence of the managerial class, and those were its good points, <laughs> have, been the, have been the main exhibits in the memorial to Western civilization that is everyday life now. I say February because that was about, it was about then that the NCAA canceled March Madness and the veil of the temple was rent in twain. <laughs> A few days after this managerial, managerial freakout, I told the students in one of my classes to start packing. They would not be finishing the semester on campus. This prediction got about as much traction with them as everything else I had said that semester. And then a week later, they were at home, opening up Zoom or some other computer platform dreamed up in one of Silicon Valley's gender-neutral bathrooms logging on, lighting up a doobie, and settling in for what they all knew would be the easiest passing grade in the history of higher education. Or to put it another way, the highly credentialed people who sent them home demonstrated their immense capacity to be compliant, which they called compassion. And tyranny itself smiled down upon this double victory, subservience achieved under the guise of virtue. No doubt it was the critical thinking skills of the highly credentialed that made this possible. Even as many uncredentialed people, blissfully outside the academy, were exercising the free rights of circumspection, doubt, and dissent, or using just plain thinking skills. This should tell us something about credentials and who really has them. Some of you may be wondering what the difference is between critical thinking and thinking. I will tell you. Thinking is a mental activity that leads to conclusions that follow logically from premises that comport with reality. <laughs> Critical thinking is a kind of mental inactivity that starts with conclusions, and any premises that might be involved are set down by battalions of soft-minded associate deans who live in a reality-optional world. These are the very same managers who will tell you that you must undergo mandatory tuition in how to be nice to everyone, including leprechauns and unicorns. No professor of systematic theology gets to tell them to get mandatory training in the doctrine of God, 
or the doctrine of man that follows from it. These managers have permission to be completely ignorant of first things. Thus, they are free to spend their vacant hours justifying their existence and salaries by dreaming up useless things for you to do, none of which involves teaching your discipline. They want to know how many reading assignments in your organic chemistry class can be brought to bear upon police brutality in the land of 10,000 lakes. That is what interests them. Is it any wonder that these managers swarm like bees in an epic simile? That, by the way, was my best joke so far. <laughs> Might be the best one I've got in here, too. I made a prediction back then, but I cannot remember what it was. Did I predict that the highly credentialed people would all agree that in-person education had been rendered obsolete thanks to the technologies of distance learning? Or did I predict the opposite? That they would soon learn how idiotic it was to suppose that biology labs and orchestra and ballet and intermediate golf could all adapt to Zoom as easily as principles of accounting or some other soul-crushing soporific course. <laughs> Whichever it was, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, <laughs> that before lockdown, I did in fact say out loud in class that distance learning is to learning what phone sex is to sex. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and even now, I cannot say for sure what the consensus is. Do we or do we not prefer Zoom to the give and take of the classroom? Do we want symposia to survive? Or is it better to stare at a screen while considering Aristotle on habituation? I don't know. But I will tell you a few things I do know. One is that the, the managerial class's response to the threat of a virus, the mortality rate of which has turned out to be 0.0107%, and almost without instance among college-aged kids, has been as impressive as the Detroit Lions bid for a winning season. <laughs> the Lions are so bad. <laughs> The Lions are so bad that the Christians are thinking about asking for a rematch. <laughs> Don't forget that the planners and the managers were putting kindergartners in plexiglass cubicles. When the note for that monstrous crime comes due, there won't be a presidential candidate from here to Beetlejuice who can print money fast enough to pay it off. I don't care how clownish his comb over is or how much mummy dust he's leaking all over the Oval Office. And it will be something to behold when the elementary kids from the year of no basketball finally pass through the long, scaly, gastric system of the educational boa constrictor and come out on the other end to fertilize our amber ways of grain and to govern in our alabaster cities. 
They will have been well-schooled in organized panic. They will have been thoroughly trained in compliance by the compliance experts, as tyranny itself smiles down on them. They certainly won't have to be taught how to sing Confirm Thy Soul in Crowd Control. Here's another thing I know. You cannot treat a carnal being such as man as if he were a disembodied spirit and hope to do so without creating a fecal atmospheric disturbance. That was pretty good. That was really good. That was better than the circumlocution about horse manure. In case that went by you too fast, I said fecal atmospheric disturbance just now. If you violate the nature of man, and if you operate under a doctrine of man fettered in the mind-forward manacles of an ancient heresy, you will witness as a result man's own violation of his nature. And those who bear this the most will be our children, even if they have a lot of experience dealing with mendacious and incompetent adults. And here's another thing. Perhaps you can picture me in the spring of 2021. I am in a large theater-like classroom, much like this one. The students are six feet apart and masked up like stagecoach robbers. I am at least 15 feet from the closest to them, shouting through a face diaper. I have two weeks of classes left before I depart this institution for good and take up house with a much saner liberal arts college. I pull the surgical mask down in defiance of the Napoleons over in HR, to whom all power has been ceded without a single vote of the faculty, which makes HR a mini version of the CDC. And I tell the students plainly, as for the first time in their lives they see a human mouth, <laughs> that what we do in school, if we know what we are doing, is this. We come together in a particular place as whole persons in friendship so that we can pursue things that are good and true and beautiful. It is not more complicated than that. Now, how many of you recognize this as the thing you've been doing the last year and a half or ever? The number of answers I can infer from their masked visages is zero. They are not whole persons, and neither am I. The greatest offense of the managers was their all-out assault on the body, which was not always easy to detect because they sold it as a great concern for the body, even though it was little more than the great modern fantasy of getting out of life alive. Nowhere was this more clear than on Sundays. I readily concede that truth is hard to come by, especially now, but consider what Christianity Today reported earlier this year. 12% of formerly regular churchgoers say they're not attending in person or watching online. Now, I actually think it's a good thing that this 12% is not watching online, and I'll tell you why. You may say, if you like, that watching Mass on Zoom, <coughs> excuse me, you may say, if you like, that watching Mass on Zoom is better than nothing. 
Just as you may say that doing phenomenology on Google Meets is better than not doing phenomenology at all. But here I must reg register my disagreement and remind you of the difference between conjugal bliss and a phone conversation with a woman calling herself Erica. <laughs> Don't get the idea that I know too much about this. <laughs> Erica, I just made up. It is not the case that all substitutes for the real thing are better than nothing. And this is the reason that when the church is closed, I kept the laptop closed as well. The message for the managers was clear. We do not think that human presence or the real presence matters all that much. Stark raving mad, though the managers be, they're getting the compliance that tyranny and despotism furiously covet. I know of a pious old woman who has not rejoined her congregation because, and I quote, I watch four church services a week on TV. She hates commies, but she is fast becoming a despot's best friend. I agree that there is such a thing as the church universal. I doubt the membership in it of anyone who isn't elbow deep in the messiness of a local parish. I agree that we should be habituated to the virtues. I give not an inch to those who would have education be virtual. We do not and never shall live in a post-ecclesial world. If we want real education to survive, we should see to it that we never live in a post-symposium world. And we had better get our heads around this fast, else we will learn too late and much too hard the lesson of Nicholas Gomez Davila, who rightly said, the modern world shall not be punished. It is the punishment. So far, this may sound like an old man on his front porch shaking the newspaper at these kids these days with their rock and roll music. I'm not an old man, and I approve of front porches. On the contrary, I'm trying to make a specific point, even though it's one I don't expect many people will agree with, and it is this. One of the easiest things to do in an age of glittering things and the magpies who chase them is to make the dubious claim that all tools and machines are neutral, that laptops and iPhones and Zoom are as susceptible of good as of bad use. This plainly is a pernicious lie. Permit me to offer an illustration. Many students where I teach are devotees of natural family planning. In contrast to the students where I taught for 25 years who are into unnatural planned fornication. The current students, I appreciate that little snicker, that was, <laughs> took me five minutes to write that one. The current students, as given to any of us, I suppose, to the purchasable gizmos that their hawkers stand to profit by, have told me that technologies cannot in and of themselves be bad. This is where being into natural family planning becomes a disadvantage to them, though not for the last time. For I waste no time asking them whether the technologies of birth control have any kind of moral disposition built into them from the start. 
Is what's in that foil wrapper merely a tool? You can't believe how hard I'm working to repress a joke right now. <laughs> Is what's in that foil wrapper merely a tool? Is what's in that foil wrapper merely a tool, or is there a whole program for living coded into its very structure? Because those things don't make for good party balloons. I welcome outraged reproof over cocktails later today, but for now, I cannot see the moral neutrality of technologies that diminish bodily presence or that fail to accord the body it's due. The examples I have given pertain to the trifecta of school and church and sex, but of course, what I'm talking about is an apparently deathless heresy. It's as if Gnosticism wears coveralls and a hockey mask and stars in every Halloween movie ever made. We have been warned plenty about its dangers, but here's one. There was a writer who in 1909 uncannily imagined and I suppose predicted the horror show that we're in right now. And for him, it was all a sin against the body. The future he imagined is set underground, which is to say in hell. And all of life is run by something called the machine. A central committee governs the affairs of everyone. You may beget children, but only with permission of the Central Committee. You may request euthanasia, but you'll be permitted to die only if the birth rate indicates new deaths. There is something very like Skype or Zoom in this world. The visage of a young man is visible to his mother on a plate-sized contraption, and hers to him, even though they live on opposite sides of the world. And he requests that she visit him so he can see her when he tells her his exciting news, which is that he has escaped the underground civilization and visited the surface of the earth, which turns out to be resplendent. His mother, habituated like us to inertia, doesn't want to go to the trouble of visiting him and insists that she can see him already, albeit minus the nuance that the medium of communication by diminishing the body perforce destroys. How is bodily presence any better than this prototype of FaceTiming? And at any rate, in the world of the machine, there is no room for so rebellious a person as this woman's son, who wants to escape the controlled subterranean environment. Men have no experience of the stars, and they cannot mirror their strength on such constellations as Orion. Motives contrary to the spirit of the age like the motive to visit the earth, or to have something like a first-hand experience, are all forbidden. There's a, global there's a global monoculture. Thanks to the advance of science, we read, the earth is exactly alike all over. Direct experience is a kind of terror to these undergrounders, as is first-hand knowledge. Tenth-hand knowledge is much preferable. At which point, people will see, and now I quote, the French Revolution not as it happened, nor as they would like it to have happened, but as it would have happened had it taken place in the days of the machine.
This despite the absence of anyone named or resembling Nicole Hannah-Jones. Physical touch is repulsive to these spiritually minded people. Atavism is forbidden. Those disaffected with life, dictated by the machine, are persecuted. The greatest virtue is subservience, or as I called it earlier, compliance. You may not leave the underground without proper authorization. You don't need an N95 mask or a QR code proving that you've been vaccinated, but interestingly enough, you are required to have a respirator and to carry an egression permit. I pause briefly to quote someone I would ordinarily ignore, a writer from the BBC. And his name isn't even Sebastian or Alistair. This story is a, this story is not simply prescient. It is a jaw-droppingly, gobsmackingly, breathtakingly accurate literary description of lockdown life in 2020. In this story, all the old literature with its praise of nature and its fear of nature rings false as the prattle of a child. In fine, something good enough has long since been accepted by our race. And then there's this. The machine has actually reprogrammed the human person. One character does not notice the noise of the machine because she had been born with it in her ears. But the machine hums, she says. Did you know that? Its hum penetrates our blood, our thoughts. In case you missed it, in addition to a prototype of Skype and a prototype of QR credentials, there is this fantastic futuristic horror show in which we find a prototype of a present reality, phantom vibration syndrome, or what some have called hypovibochondria. That's when you think your phone is buzzing, but it's not. It's like uh, amputee feeling leg pain from a leg that's not there. 1909. Many of you know that I have been describing and quoting from E.M. Forster's The Machine Dies. But be of good cheer. The machine dies. The powerful central bureaucracy that runs everything doesn't, in the end, run anything. Because it turns out that, true to form, the managerial class is arrogant, stupid, and incompetent. And the system it put in place is failing. The central bureaucracy is dying of its own too much and also of its own too little. It works now, but like the managerial class, with its leprechauns and unicorns, it doesn't comport with reality. So it can't work forever. As Alexander Pope said in the 18th century, truth will buoy up at last. And as I say in the 21st century, if it buoys up like a fart in the bathtub, so be it, so long as it buoys up. At the end of the story, we read this. The sin against the body, that it was for this that they wept in chief. The centuries of wrong against the muscles and the nerves, and those five portals 
by which we can alone apprehend, glozing it over with talk of evolution until the body was white pap, the home of ideas as colorless, last sloshy stirrings of a spirit that had once grasped the stars. But for the sins against the body, our managerial class weeps not and won't. For one thing, it doesn't understand the word sin. For another, its members don't know who the Manichaeans were, nor why St. Augustine railed against them. They are schooled only in things that aren't so. They hold the levers of power, the machine of education, government, commerce, and communication. They like you best when you cede the body to the virtual revolution, where there is neither place, nor limits, nor liberty. Let's hope the machine stops. Let's hope there is an after virtual. Restore the body to its rightful place in the cosmos, and those kids I mentioned will get a chance to put natural family planning to the test. And now, as you will hear Bill Kaufman say later today, thanks for listening, which is his favorite euphemism for, you can all wake up now. <laughs> Next time, we'll hear from keynote speaker Chris Arnotti, who discusses the things that make up one's address in the universe. Until next time, thanks for pulling up a school desk. Find your way home. Find your way home.